Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 2nd. In today's news, the administration's former envoy to Ukraine agrees to appear for a Thursday deposition. President Trump wanted U.S. soldiers to shoot immigrants in the legs who illegally crossed the border. And today is the anniversary of Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder by the Saudis. We're still waiting for justice. But first, the big idea. President Trump's destructive trade war and his blind loyalty to big oil are combining to cripple Iowa farmers and could put the farm belt in play next year. On a typical day, about 80 tractor trailers full of corn line up to dump their loads at Siouxland Energy Cooperative, the ethanol plant in Sioux Center, Iowa. The air throbs with the noise and vibrations of this industrial moonshine operation, which distills nature's harvest into a cleaner burning fuel. But today, the warm Iowa sun shines on an empty parking lot, and the machinery sits idle. After two decades, Siouxland this week halted operations following the EPA's decision to exempt 31 small oil refiners from a federal law requiring them to blend ethanol in their gasoline. The Trump administration did this after an intense lobbying campaign by the oil industry. The waivers, which the Trump administration has approved at four times the rate as its predecessor, have undercut demand for ethanol and the corn used to make it. Steve Westra, the plant manager, tells our David Lynch that the waivers are what pushed them over the edge because it killed the potential for farmers to make any money at ethanol. For Iowa farmers already suffering from an extended trade war with China, the ruling has made ethanol the focus of their growing ire over Trump's policies. The trade war has cost farmers potential Chinese orders for the corn-based fuel, as well as for a byproduct that is used as animal feed. Now, the refinery exemptions are compounding the financial pain and threatening political consequences for the president, who carried Iowa and its six electoral votes in 2016. Kelly Newenhouse, a 60-year-old corn and soybean farmer in Primger, Iowa, says she supported Trump in the last election, but doesn't think she can vote for him again, at least if the election was held today. Meanwhile, another core Trump constituency in the Midwest is also struggling as a result of the president's policies. U.S. manufacturing fell deeper into a contraction last month, a racing hope of a quick turnaround for the industry and underscoring the failure of the president to deliver on his promise to bring back blue-collar jobs. September marked the worst month for U.S. manufacturing in more than a decade, according to a closely-watched manufacturing index produced by the nonpartisan Institute for Supply Management. Companies blame Trump's trade war for many of their woes, Stocks sold off quickly on the news that every manufacturing sector reported trouble, with the Dow closing down 344 points. And perhaps the most alarming sign of all, employers also reported that employment is down. That's an indication that manufacturers are so worried they're starting to lay off employees. One plastics and rubber products company said yesterday that it laid off 10% of its workforce. And the World Trade Organization just downgraded its forecast for global trade growth this year and next as the trade war shows little signs of ending anytime soon. And the strike at General Motors has also contributed to the worsening manufacturing picture. 46,000 workers have 
stopped working since the start of September, forcing the major automaker to halt production in its facilities. That hurts everyone in the supply chain. The chief economist at Deutsche Bank says in a new note for clients that went out this morning, quote, there is no end in sight to this slowdown and the recession risk is real. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, impeachment drama continues. The State Department's inspector general and two former State Department officials have agreed to appear on Capitol Hill. That came just hours after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the department would block them from testifying. But by the end of the day, at least one of the five people who had received a subpoena, Kurt Volker, a former administration envoy to Ukraine who resigned last Friday night, plans to appear this Thursday anyway. A second official, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, has agreed to appear before Congress on October 11th. Meanwhile, the committees that are investigating impeachment were notified last night that the State Department's inspector general has requested to speak with staff later today to discuss next steps, but also to provide copies of documents related to the State Department's work in Ukraine. We don't know what the documents say, but the IG told staff that it was urgent. In letters to Vice President Pence and Energy Secretary Rick Perry yesterday, Senator Bob Menendez, the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, demanded answers by the close of business Friday to questions about what they knew, when they knew it, and their role in Trump's actions pushing Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden for his political advantage. In an interesting defection, Chuck Grassley, the Republican senator from Iowa, broke with Trump yesterday over the whistleblower. Grassley said it's important to protect the whistleblower and said that the fact that the individual's knowledge of Trump's phone call and potential misconduct came from sources, in other words, secondhand, does not mean that what he relayed in his complaint is not accurate. Number two, nearly six months after taking over the Department of Homeland Security as acting secretary, Kevin McAleenan has guided the United States out of a crisis at the southern border. But he also says he's lost command of the public messaging from his department and lacks some of the authority he was promised by the president when he took the job. Increasingly isolated within the administration and overshadowed by others who were more effective in their praise for Trump, McAleenan said in a remarkable interview with my colleague Nick Miroff that he retains operational control of DHS, mainly the ability to coordinate work at the border among ICE, Customs and Border Protection, and Citizenship and Immigration Services. But he acknowledged that he's losing the battle to keep DHS, which he views as a neutral law enforcement agency, from being used as a powerful tool for a partisan immigration agenda. McAleenan was referring to recent DHS appointees who won their jobs after advocating aggressively for the president on television. Mark Morgan, the acting head of CPB, and Ken Cuccinelli, the acting U.S. CIS director, who is rumored as a potential replacement for McAleenan. Separately, the New York Times has a story on its front page today that says Trump has often talked privately about fortifying his border wall with a water-filled trench stocked with snakes or alligators. He was so serious about the idea that aides actually tried to get a cost estimate. The Times also says that he wanted the wall electrified with spikes on top that could pierce human flesh. And after publicly suggesting that soldiers shoot migrants if they threw rocks across the border, the president backed off when his staff told him that was illegal. 
But then later, apparently, according to the Times, in another Oval Office meeting, Trump suggested that soldiers shoot migrants in the legs to slow them down and hobble them when they cross the border. The advisors told the president that shooting immigrants in the legs is prohibited by several laws and international treaties. My colleague Josh Dossie confirms that this actually happened from people who were in the room. Number three, a year ago, Jamal Khashoggi walked into Saudi Arabia's consulate in Istanbul. He never walked out. The gruesome murder of the Saudi journalist, a contributing columnist, for the Washington Post and a critic of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman sent shockwaves through capitals in the Middle East, Europe, and North America, where the young Saudi prince had been carefully cultivating an image of a modern reformer. Saudi Arabia first denied any knowledge of what happened to Khashoggi and claimed he'd walked out the back door. But more than two weeks after Khashoggi was killed, on October 2nd, 2018, Saudi Arabia admitted that he had been killed by agents of the kingdom and they pledged to bring the killers to justice. On this terrible anniversary, though, not a single Saudi official has been found guilty or punished for their role. In two TV interviews that aired this week, Mohammed has denied any involvement or advanced knowledge of the killing, but he says he takes responsibility for the death because it happened on his watch. But a CIA assessment made shortly after Khashoggi's death concluded with a, quote, high degree of confidence that Mohammed personally ordered the assassination. CIA sources tell us this week that assessment has not changed. We will never forget our colleague, nor what the regime in Riyadh did to him. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 2nd. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.